friends and shalom. This is Tom with Truth Ignited Ministry, and today I'm bringing you part two of my message that I've titled Counterfeits. Before I begin, just a quick reminder that you can support Truth Ignited through the Spotify podcast page, Cash App, or by visiting truthignited.com. For your convenience, I have provided QR codes that you can scan during this message. Also, Check out the cool swag at the Truth Ignited store on TeePublic. Your support will help Truth Ignited do more and reach more people. Today we're going to begin by talking about a counterfeit Jesus. A counterfeit Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11.4 from the ERV says, You seem to be quite patient with anyone who comes to you and tells you about a Jesus that is different from the Jesus that we told you about, or really the Yeshua that the apostles preached. Now let's talk about what might be the three biggest problems with the modern day Christian church, starting with the problem of the counterfeit Jesus. Paul, the apostle that the counterfeit Christians of today love to misquote to justify their false doctrines to their own destruction, you know, see 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, actually warned about this fake Jesus and expressed great concern that people just accept it. Before we get into this, I want to consider one thing right away, and that is that this Jesus is not the, even the name of our Messiah. His name is Yeshua. This is important because Yeshua means salvation, or, or really means Yah's salvation, or God's salvation. And, and Jesus has no meaning at all. Jesus is simply a transliteration of a transliteration. It went from the Hebrew to the Greek to eventually to English. And as a transliteration, it's simply a meaningless placeholder that merely points back to the correct name of Yeshua, which means salvation. So, you know, once you have a revelation of the real name, it makes no sense at all to keep spouting off a meaningless name. Use his real name that has prophetic meaning. Now, I do need to point out here that there is absolutely positively nothing wrong with Christians using the name Jesus to refer to Messiah Yeshua. There are people who have made false claims that the name Jesus is connected to the Greek god Zeus, or that it's got something to do with pigs. You know, these are things that are very easily debunked. I've also heard people try to promote an idea that if you say Jesus, you're not saved, and you can only be saved if you call him Yeshua. This is nothing more than satirical propaganda pushed by extremists among certain messianic and Hebrew roots movement fringe groups. Jesus is a valid name for our Messiah, but it is also a meaningless placeholder, a transliteration of a transliteration. Yeshua, on the other hand, is the divine name of our Messiah, meaning salvation, and as such, it holds divine power. With this in mind, let me ask you a question. What's to stop devils from presenting themselves as false messiahs using the meaningless name of Jesus to identify themselves? Yeshua warned us, as recorded in Matthew 24, 24, false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, even if possible, even the chosen. There are many counterfeits of Yeshua in, the relig in religion today, all taking the name of Jesus because the false messiahs do not have the authority to take on the true name Yeshua, there's the popular white Jesus, complete with the long, blonde, or brown hair and the blue eyes and the neatly groomed beard. You know, there's the 
black Jesus, or or sometimes the Jesus with dreadlocks, the, the Jesus with the short haircut, and all manner of others that modern Christianity has dreamed up, all being assigned that name Jesus. But the true Messiah, Yeshua, was and is a Jewish rabbi, a man of Middle Eastern descent whose ancestry connects him to the tribe of Judah and the lineage of David. He lived his whole life as a Torah-observant Jew. There was nothing Christian about Yeshua. He was not a Christian at all. What's important about this is that 1 John 2, 6 tells us that whoever abides in Yeshua must walk just as he walked. How many Christians today are walking just as he walked? I can assure you, very few are. There is a radically false view today of who Yeshua was. People ignore the outbursts of rage against evil and hypocrisy because they don't mesh well with the modern fake grace message and the nice, peaceful Jesus that they want to portray. They seemingly miss the fact that the real Yeshua never once ate a piece of pork or some kind of shellfish or any other unclean animal. Because then, walking just as he walked would require Christians to obey the biblical food laws. They don't have any regard for the facts surrounding his birth because they need to justify their celebration of Christmas, a holiday that originates directly from the pagan and idolatrous Roman Catholic religion. Have you ever noticed that all of these popular secular pagan holidays need to be justified and presented as alternatives to their evil variations in the world? You know, whether it's Christmas, Easter, Halloween, or whatever else Christians want to celebrate, despite not being in the Bible, there's always the need to make excuses to justify their existence and provide alternative celebrations to what the world does with them. I've posed the question in the past, knowing that Yeshua was not born in the winter, anywhere close to December 25th, to ask how using only a Bible we can justify celebrating Christmas. Nobody has ever been able to give me an answer. Just a lot of excuses that typically start out with, well... I don't know, but, or, or, or this one, well, you can't, but, no, look, if you can't justify the holiday, and if you know it's not in the Bible, and you know it has roots in paganism, even if it's just Roman Catholic paganism, because I know there's debates about some of the other stuff, but even if we only focused on the Roman Catholic paganism of Christmas, Easter, and Halloween, that should be enough. You can't justify these holidays with the Bible. They're not in there. They don't come from the Bible. They come from the pagan Catholic Church. You know what, what celebrations need no justification, excuses, or alternatives to what the world does? The feasts of Yah listed in the Bible. You don't need an alternative to the world's celebration of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, the day of Pentecost, the day of trumpets, the day of atonement, tabernacles, or even Hanukkah and Purim, because the only people who celebrate them are people who obey the Torah and follow the Bible. Now, I know many Jews who don't accept Yeshua as Messiah celebrate them, but they still 
obey the Torah, follow the Bible for the most part. So then, these secular pagan holidays of Roman Catholicism, you know, Christmas, Easter, and Halloween, along with all the days that venerate saints like St. Patrick's Day and St. Valentine's Day, actually sit as counterfeits in their own right to Yah's holy feast that we do find in the Bible. And on top of that, the real Yeshua, our Messiah, celebrated these Torah-appointed feasts. If Yeshua were present in the flesh with us today, he would not only still be celebrating these feasts, but he would be going into all of these so-called churches that celebrate things like Christmas, Easter, and Halloween, and start flipping over tables, kicking the pews over, and screaming at the people, chasing them out of the church with a bullwhip, starting with the backslidden pastors that promote them. That's if, of course, he's even nice enough to let them live as these holidays are built on Roman Catholic paganism and idolatry. And Isaiah 66, 17 indicates that when he returns, he's just going to obliterate all of the idolaters, along with all of the people who eat unclean things like pork, rodents, and shellfish. If you're a part of this counterfeit religion calling itself Christianity, don't think for a moment that Yeshua would be nice to you. He was not nice to the religious hypocrites in his own day, he most certainly would not be very nice to any of these fake Christians today. You know, if you've read my message, The Narrow Path, Part 1, you're familiar with the estimates that as low as 5% or even one half of 1% of all professing Christians are really saved. And if you've not read that message, you can find it at truthignited.com. Regardless if it's 1 in 20 or 1 in 200, the, the one who is saved is the one who does what the Bible says, walking as Yeshua walked. Faith in Yeshua requires an abandonment of the ways of the world. John 15, 19 records Yeshua telling his disciples, which includes all today who sit under his discipleship, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world, since I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. We're called to live apart from the culture around us, not assimilate into it or attempt to bring worldly culture into the body of Messiah or the churches under the guise of evangelism. Today, many churches use all sorts of worldly methods to try to lure in the people. They claim that they're not celebrating the ways of the world, but just looking to bring people into their church so that they can minister the gospel to them. But what gospel and what Jesus are they offering if they're using the ways of the world to draw them? Consider these statements in the classic work, Christ and Culture by H. Richard Niebuhr. It is relevant, however, to point out that cultural Christianity is not, evidently, more effective in gaining disciples for Christ than Christian radicalism is. In efforts at accommodation, Gnostics and cultural Protestants find it strangely desirable to write apocryphal gospels and new lives of Jesus. They take some fragment of the complex New Testament story and interpretation, call this the essential characteristic of Jesus, elaborate upon it and thus reconstruct their own mythical figure of the Lord. The number of special objections of this sort that are raised against the Christ of culture interpretation can be multiplied, but whether few or many, they become the basis of the charge that loyalty to contemporary culture has so far qualified the loyalty to Christ that he has been abandoned in favor of an idol called by his name. 
Now, just let that sink in for a little bit. You know, an idol caused by his, called by his name. This is not some modern-day radical extremist who wrote this and self-published a digital book. This is a classic work that I've been told is a standard in seminaries. When, when you assimilate the God-hating culture into your Christian faith in any form, you're basically making a mythical figure, an idol, calling it Jesus and setting it up as an idol in place of the real Yeshua. On top of that, as Niebuhr points out, this is no more effective than just taking the Bible alone and doing what it says. Yeshua said that if we lift him up, he will draw the people in. You may draw people in by using worldly and cultural methods of evangelism, but what are you drawing them to? I'll tell you what you're drawing them to. A counterfeit Christianity. A counterfeit Christian church. A counterfeit Jesus. A counterfeit spirit. You know, I'm going to talk about the next. A counterfeit gospel. You... If you want the real thing, you absolutely must abandon the world and its culture. So now we're going to talk about the counterfeit spirit from 2 Corinthians 11.4. In a message that I've titled, Is the Ruach Schizophrenic? Again, truthignited.com. I dealt with the primary issues regarding God's Holy Spirit, which... If we go back to the Hebrew, it really should be rendered spirit of holiness. The first thing that I talked about was a heresy that presented the spirit as having multiple personalities or being two separate unique spirits, Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost. I will not talk about that here as this problem was thoroughly addressed in that message. The other thing I brought up in that message that I want to go into again here is who the real spirit of holiness is. As I parenthetically inserted a moment ago, the Hebrew term Ruach HaKodesh literally means spirit of holiness. The real spirit of Yah is a spirit of holiness, meaning that if you have him, he will cause you to live a holy life, walking in the Torah, just as it says in Ezekiel 36, 27. Before I get too deep into this, I want to emphasize an important point here. Because of because of laws set forth in the scripture regarding free will, the, the spirit of holiness will never force you to do anything. You must submit yourself to him if you want him to take control of your life and lead you in holiness. The same is true of demon possession. A person must do something of their own free will to open their body up to outright possession by a demon spirit. However, I do believe that every person who's not really saved is on some level being influenced by demon spirits. That may be why the counterfeit Christianity of today has so much power and why so few people in these churches, possibly as low as one half of one percent of all professing Christians, are actually saved. Because the church institution is ultimately being controlled by demonic powers or those who are being influenced by devils. As I stated in my aforementioned message on the spirit being schizophrenic, if, if we regard him simply as the Holy Spirit, we often tend to view him as one who helps us outwardly. You know, the Holy Spirit works in divine healing, an outward act. The Holy Spirit delivers us from the power of demonic influence, an outward act. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, wisdom, knowledge, discerning of spirits, faith, interpretation, working of miracles and healing. You know, 1 Corinthians 12, all received from the Holy Spirit outwardly. But if you get a revelation of the spirit of holiness, 
He goes from being a provider of outward blessing to being the provider of holiness working from the inside out. This is not to say that Holy Spirit and Spirit of Holiness are different things. Ultimately, they're just different ways of saying the same thing. If the Spirit of Holiness is in you, though, if you have truly invited Him in, been baptized, fully immersed in Him, if you've if you have seated him in the most holy place of your body as his temple, you know, the most holy place being the human heart, then you will be consumed with holiness. In the past, I've noticed that there are several things that happen to a person who is truly saved. Such a person is a new creature in Messiah, 2 Corinthians 5.17, with a new heart and a new spirit, Ezekiel 36.26. Yeshua lives in him or her, Galatians 2.20. He or she is the temple of Yah, 1 Corinthians 3.16-17, and the temple of God's spirit of holiness, 1 Corinthians 6.19. And God himself has placed his Torah in his or her mind, and written his Torah on their heart. Jeremiah 31, verses 30 through 36, Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12. But regardless of all that, let's just focus on the spirit of holiness. If the spirit of holiness is living in you, if you have truly invited him into your life and given him his rightful place on the throne of your heart, then you'll be so overwhelmingly consumed with the things of God that the other 95 or 99.5% of, of those so-called Christians out there who aren't really saved will think you are a crazy, radical fanatic who's not normal. This, of course, is because such people define normal based on what they see everyone else doing instead of rightfully defining normal by what the Bible says. Since we're talking about percentages here, consider this quote that is widely attributed to the late A.W. Tozer, though it appears there's no original source for the quote that can be tracked down, at least not that I've been able to find. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop, and everybody would know the difference. I don't think it's a coincidence that men like Ravenhill and Ridehead present estimates that between 95% and 99.5% of professing Christians are not even saved, and Tozer says that if the Spirit were removed from the church, nobody would even know, because 95% of what they are doing is not of God in the first place. The Christian church, for the most part, has become a social club of an unsaved mass majority doing the exact opposite of what the Bible says to do. And the moment a true man or woman of God says something about it, they're labeled as crazy and radical and fanatical and extremist and jealous and, and zealot or or sometimes sometimes Judaizer or Pharisee get thrown around. Whatever other, you know, or whatever other indignant term these hypocrites want to come up with to protect their own interests. Think about it. If the Bible is the only standard of truth in the history of the world, which it is, then the Bible is the only standard for which the word normal can be defined. If you're not careful, all those devils in churches will convince you to live like the world because that's what they consider to be normal. I have a whole message about this titled, What is Normal? Again, on my website, truthignited.com, and I suggest taking the time to read it if you want to know more about this topic. 
All of those characteristics of a truly saved person I mentioned a moment ago will, will cause you to hunger for the things of God and the pages of the Bible. If you're not drawn to a Bible, hungry for its words, seeking out anything and everything it commands so you can obey it, then you're not saved. It's just that simple. You, you cannot have all of those characteristics in your life and refuse to read a Bible. Yes, there is the extremely rare situation where a person is maybe physically incapable of reading reading a Bible, but even then there's ways to get the word inside of you in most cases. Now let me clarify something is I've seen people say that they know whether or not a person is saved. And that's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying this is what the Bible says, that there are characteristics of a saved person. It's up to you, though, to decide if that's how you're going to live out your faith. And the condition of your salvation is really only known to God. But, but the Bible does give us a map of what a saved person looks like, and so we can conclude in a generalistic sense that a person whose life does not align with that is most likely not saved. Where it crosses into blasphemy is when you say you profess to know a person is not, never was, or has fallen away to the point of no longer being saved. But think about the spirit of holiness for a moment. If you didn't have any of those other things, if you were not a new creature, a Messiah, with a new spirit and a new heart, and if you didn't have Yeshua living in you, and, and if you weren't the temple of God, and, and if the Father did not put his Torah in your mind and write it on your heart, and you only were given the Spirit upon receiving Yeshua as your Messiah, you would still have more than you need to live right. Especially because in Ezekiel 36, 27, it tells us that when you receive the Spirit, He will cause you to walk in the Torah. The Spirit of Holiness is the driving force of holy living. The other characteristics of being saved that I mentioned are wonderful and, and helpful. I mean, it's awesome that God puts His Torah in our mind and writes it on our heart because then the Torah becomes part of the very fiber of our being. That means that when you read the 630 mitzvot in the Torah, there is no question about whether or not to obey them because they're already part of who you are. When you read even the ones rejected by most of the Christians, like the food laws, the feast days, the Sabbath day, not getting tattoos, not wearing wool and linen fabrics together. And, you know, you, you just obey them because the Torah is as much a part of you as the blood flowing through your veins, if you're truly saved, of course. You know, I remember when I was first taught the truth about the food laws years ago, and, and we're talking probably... 20 years ago. It wasn't even a question for me. I didn't need to go into a Bible and try to figure it out. Why? Because I was and am saved. The Torah was already written on my heart and implanted into my mind. When the truth was spoken and it lined up with what was already inside of me, the Spirit took over and I've not touched any unclean thing at least knowingly, ever again. You, you know, because sometimes they put stuff in, in foods and you just know, nobody even knows it's there. But, but regardless of the Torah being written on our hearts and placed in our mind, it's ultimately the work of God's spirit of holiness that drives us to live holy. The bottom line is that if you are not consumed by the Bible and driven to live holy, sanctified and set apart to the things of God as commanded in his Torah, then you have not then you do not have the real spirit of holiness. You might have some kind of a spirit, but I assure you it's not the spirit of holiness, the real Holy Spirit. Most likely the spirit you have is a demon spirit, and you need to see someone filled with the real spirit of God to cast that thing out of you. 
let, let me also take a moment and say, as I did in my previous message and alluded to a moment ago, that it does, I don't see any issue with saying Holy Spirit. It, it, it's the accepted English variant of Ruach HaKodesh. I personally would recommend refraining from saying Holy Ghost, as the word ghost represents the demonic world in death. But but if your personal conviction after reviewing the facts on this does not agree with, does not agree, and you want to continue saying Holy Ghost, yeah, technically this name, I, I guess, comes from a time when the word ghost may not have been associated with the demonic the way it the way it does today. I, I know it's very difficult to break some people from traditional terms, or and older Pentecostals are simply accustomed to saying Holy Ghost. I think Baptists, a lot of the old Baptists too. But as long as people are not creating heresies like those I presented in the past about this, it's probably not the worst tradition Christians hold on to. But but if you research the word ghost, it, it, it does seem very concerning to call anything from God a ghost. However, since these phrases, Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost, are not the literal transliteration of Ruach HaKodesh, and neither one really means the same thing as Spirit of Holiness, it does make me wonder if, much like I said in regarding the name of Jesus, demon spirits can manifest under these names as well, and through them present counterfeits of the Spirit of God. I mean, after all, there are plenty of churches out there that think they have the Holy Spirit when they clearly don't, because if they were they to, because if they were to have the real spirit of holiness, they certainly would not be doing the things that they are doing. Okay, so now we're to talk about the third one, which is that counterfeit gospel. Okay, the third counterfeit presented by Paul is the fake gospel. I, I firmly believe that the reason we have counterfeit conversions and statistics of only maybe one half of one percent, maybe as much as five percent of professing Christians actually truly saved, is because we have a counterfeit gospel. More than the counterfeits Jesus and, and the counterfeit spirit, this counterfeit gospel is perhaps the most damning of them all. After all, the false Jesus, as many as there are, and the false spirit are essentially the result of an alternative of the true gospel, the imitation that Paul warned us about. To get into this, let's first consider what Andrew Farley says in his book, The Naked Gospel, The Truth You May Never Hear in Church. He says, it's frustrating to operate under a counterfeit belief system and not know why it fails you. I know because I've been there, but the message of Christ in you is the real thing, the word of God in its fullness. Today's alternative is a message that that's an inaccurate part of the whole. All, all around us, we're inundated with a lackluster gospel that advocates partial forgiveness, a pressure-filled motivation for behavior change, and the promise of earned rewards in heaven or a cash return while on earth. This counterfeit is the reason that the church sometimes doesn't appear much different from the world. It's time to start over, if necessary, and seek the real thing. A.W. Tozer, who I've already referred to once, said in a sermon titled, What Does It Mean to Accept Christ?, he said, if your Christian conversion did not reverse the direction of your life, if it did not transform it, then you're not converted at all. You are simply a victim of the accept Jesus heresy. Think about that. The counterfeit of the true gospel message actually creates a heresy out of accepting Yeshua as Messiah. 
Had I not already mentioned Niebuhr's work, this would also be a good place to bring that up. How is this possible? A counterfeit gospel causes you to accept a counterfeit Jesus and be filled with a counterfeit spirit, and that should be cause for concern. A gospel that does not lead you toward obedience of the Torah of Yah is not the real gospel at all. God's spirit is the spirit of holiness. He will always lead you back to the Torah and push you toward full obedience. Yeshua is the Torah made flesh to tabernacle with you and in you. His whole mission centered around the Torah and fully filling you with that same Torah. That's what Matthew 5.17 is all about, after all. You know, many people take Yeshua's words in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I came to abolish the Torah of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. To, to somehow mean that he would abolish the Torah after he said that's not what he came to do. Because somehow they think fulfill means the same thing as abolish. This is a very misunderstood passage that many use to try to claim that Yeshua's work on the cross ultimately ended the need to follow the Torah. Let's take a closer look at what this verse is really saying. Abolish in the original Greek means destroy, overthrow, tear down, unyoke, unharness. Fulfill in the original Greek means accomplish, amply supplied, complete, fully carry, fully preach or teach. Fulfill from an English etymology is the combination of the two words fill, full. This is is in harmony with the Greek and can be combined with how this Greek word is defined and further define it as to say, to fill full. So, knowing this, we can read this verse this way for a more proper understanding. Do not think that I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, overthrow them, unyoke them, or tear them down, but rather to accomplish them through you, supply them to you, complete them in your presence as an example, fully carry you in them, and fully preach and teach them to you. I came to fill you full of the Father's Torah. And that's Matthew 5.17 from the Truth Ignited Expanded Paraphrase Translation, which is not a real thing but maybe one day I should make it one. Sid Roth, a well-known Messianic Jewish author and the host of the Christian television program It's Supernatural, asks in his book The Incomplete Church Unifying God's Children, what would the church be like today if we started from scratch? What would happen if we removed all tradition from Judaism and Christianity and Jews and Christians came together as one? In similar manner, author Francis Chan asks in his book Letters to the Church, the more I study the gospel, the more I'm convinced that those of us who live in the United States have a warped idea of what it means to be a Christian. It, it's a it is for that reason our churches are in the state they are in. A warped view of Christianity can only result in a warped church. But what if we started over? What if we bulldozed what we currently call church and started over with actual Christians? You know, these are profound questions, that, and they certainly require an answer. If not from the body of Messiah as a whole, they should certainly be considered by any individual believer to whom they are presented, and, and that would include you, if you're listening to this message. What would happen, indeed, if we eliminated the nearly 2,000 years of Christian and rabbinic Jewish history that developed after the apostles penned the writings that make up what is commonly, but wrongly, referred to as the New Testament, and we simply went back to the Bible? You know, before holidays like Christmas and Easter were invented, before some bishop, posthumously named as a pope, made some vague statement that deemed the official change 
to the food laws. You know, that's actually the origin of the so-called change to the food laws, not anything in the Bible. But before any of today's traditions were developed, regardless of any claims of them coming from pagan religions or, or merely being the result of misinformation, what if we just went back to the Bible alone? I'll tell you what would happen. We would not need to argue over whether or not certain holidays come from pagan religions because we would not be celebrating them merely by default that they're not in the Bible. We wouldn't be debating about whether or not it's okay to have church on Sunday because all we see, even through the whole book of Acts, is God's people keeping the Sabbath day and making it their custom to gather for the reading of the Torah at their local synagogues on the biblical Sabbath day. Yeshua included. We, we wouldn't have movements justifying everything the Bible says not to do and cause an abomination, from the food laws to sexual immorality, because the Bible says not to do them and calls them an abomination. While it's true, as many Christians love to point out, that Genesis 1.27 defines two genders of male and female, it's also true that Genesis 7.2 defines two types of animals, clean and unclean, and a deviation from either is equally called an abomination in your Bible. If we got rid of all doctrines and denominations and, and just went back to the Bible, I can assure you that Christianity would be different in just about every way imaginable from what we see proclaimed from today's pulpits because modern popular Christianity is in so many ways the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. You know, two passages from Scripture that most clearly define modern-day Christian practice are Ezekiel 22-26 and Matthew 7-21-23. And that's a scary reality. When you preach a counterfeit gospel with a counterfeit Jesus and a counterfeit spirit, you get counterfeit Christians. But those few who have chosen not to compromise, those who have made a conscious decision to follow the whole Bible, must stand as the pillar of hope. Many will reject us as intolerant, radical fanatics, and perhaps even haters of the very places of worship we may choose to connect with. This is nothing new. Just read the Bible. Throughout history, it seems there has always been a majority. There's always been a crowd in the wilderness that God that God called stiff-necked people, Exodus 32.9. There have always been leaders who provoke the wrath of God by choosing the culture over the kingdom. You know, just read about pretty much all of the kings of Israel whose legacy is that they did evil in the eyes of God by molding golden calves, building altars to Baal, burning incense in the high places, and raising up Asherah poles. All of which is really no different than so-called Christian pastors today who bring Santa Claus and colored egg hunts and trunk or treats into their churches during those Christmas, Easter, and Halloween holidays. But, but there's also those rare characters like Nathan the prophet, whose primary legacy in the Bible is that he got right up in the face of the king of Israel, David, and rebuked him regarding his sin with Bathsheba. And there were also a few kings in Israel every now and then who did what was right in the eyes of God, who tore down the altars to Baal and the Asherah poles. You know, the big question then is, are you going to follow the crowd or are you going to be listed among the few who actually decided to do what the Bible says? Hey, friends. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. If this message has impacted you, please feel free to share it with others. 
If you're enjoying these teachings, be sure to subscribe and consider becoming a $5 or $10 monthly partner. If you want to make a larger donation, please contact ministry at truthignited.com. If you're interested in more teachings like this from Truth Ignited Ministry, be sure to check out the website at www.truthignited.com and follow Truth Ignited on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. I'll see you next time. Blessings and Shalom.